Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, The Mormon Wellness Project, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax exempt inside the United States and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great programs. Helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Marriage on a Tightrope. This is Alan. And I'm Katie. And we're still married. And we're with another still married couple tonight. What? We're very excited to have James and Denise, or Denise and James Stevenson, whichever you prefer. Thank you so much for joining us, and, and welcome to Marriage on a Tightrope. Yeah, thanks. This is exciting for a number of reasons. And nerve-wracking for a number of reasons. And I'll, I'll explain to, to everybody, especially the Stevensons, why. You may not know this. We have, we've set up probably six different couples to, to interview. And this is the first one. <laughs> this is the first oh, wow. time that, that we've made it work. So just with schedule, we were supposed to do one earlier this week, and it got rescheduled. We were supposed to do yours last week, and it got rescheduled. So thank you for working through technical issues before this. Uh, you're actually the ones recording the episode now, so you're already going above and beyond the the call of duty here. They're in it for sure. the long haul. Oh yeah. Well, we I I this episode is all about you guys, so we'd we'd love to shut up and and let you introduce yourselves uh, already in just a, a couple of minutes of getting to know you before we started recording. Um, really excited for our listeners to hear another perspective of doesn't matter what Katie and I can talk about, we we don't have the perspective you do so. Go ahead and introduce yourselves. We'll turn it over to you. Okay, thanks. So I'm Denise. Um, I've known James since I was 15 or 16. So we've been together for a long time. Um, we both grew up in Alaska. We both went to BYU. And we live in Seattle. Nice. Um, yeah, I like Seattle a lot. James works for Amazon. We have two kids. And mostly I play mommy, but I am also a clothing fit and construction teacher. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, a clothing... clothing fit and construction? Yeah, like a so, sewing teacher? Yeah, I do um, the advanced sewing classes at the local fabric store. Oh, man. She also takes oh. these commissions for the, these kind of cool cosplays and tries to take like, you know, movie, movie accurate uh, <laughs> replicas of things. And she, she's underselling. Um, how good she is at it. I think she's gone far beyond the typical crafting sewing into um, really loving garment construction and fit. Nice. Yeah. I got to say, Denise, it, it was hard to compete with James works at Amazon, but you did it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's really cool. I do That's really great. enjoy it. I like and when it gets out of crafting and into engineering. I need a Denise in next door to me to help <laughs> me with all of my... <laughs> Kids' yeah. Halloween costumes, because... Halloween is my busy season. I I'm so glad when we hit yeah. November 1st. <laughs> so, how old are your kids? They are 12 and 9. 
Both boys. boys. Nice. See, if you're next time you're in Utah, we're in Seattle. We've got a 12 and 10 year old. We got to hang out. Yeah, definitely. That'd be awesome. <laughs> so, what else would you like to know? Just prior to doing kind of the timeline of of who you guys are from a marriage slash faith perspective, what else should we know about you? Who is this? Mm, who yeah. are Stevenson? <laughs> um, so, I mean, we've we've always been we've always been really close, um, and I think. Uh, growing up in Alaska, you have kind of a an interesting perspective on things. You can take just kind of slow down and, and appreciate life, appreciate the people around else you. To do. That's 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 a major uh, major thing there. So um, yeah, I grew up in in really a, a log cabin. We didn't have running water for for quite a while, um, and so over over that you know few decades to get to being doing you know AI research and things at Amazon, I think I've mm. seen I've seen a lot of different. Uh, varieties of lifestyle and then going um i was a convert as well so um i've experienced life before the church and in the church and then also outside of the church so i think my life has a, a lot of variety in it yeah. um generally a pretty creative person i like to um cook or do photography or play trumpet and um kind of blend the analytical and the creative together uh, just as much as denise's fabric construction hmm. um Builds things, but also enjoys the engineering behind it. So I, I think we're well, well suited together, and we've we've been that way for twenty years. Great. And I'm a about... military brat, so oh, I'm wow. all over. And between the two of us, we've done a lot of stuff. Yeah. So military brat. So where did you live all over the place? Obviously, you mentioned Alaska, but were you so, moving around a lot when you were? Oh yeah. I was. I was born in Vegas, and then we moved to Alaska, and then we moved to Japan. And then we moved to Arizona, and then we moved from Arizona back to Alaska in the dead of winter. That was interesting. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And um, then after I went to BYU, my parents got stationed in Mississippi, and then outside of Ogden, and then that's where they retired. They're retired now, and the two of you, you said, met at BYU, right? No, we we met met in high high school. school, yeah. Oh, high that's school, right. Yeah, okay, you met in high school. You said fifteen or sixteen, and then, and then tell us, take us from there. Um, you're yeah going through BYU. How did you get together? So I guess probably I guess we can start being we, fifteen. We never, yeah, we never got untogether really. We never really wow. did. Um, so yeah, we met in we met in high school and um, in band. Because I bashed actually. him upside the head in band. Yeah. So she she oh. we, we were first introduced because uh, she had she had some gripes about how fast I was leading the section and. Playfully, she was doing it wrong. She, she thought I was doing it wrong. So playfully kind of whapped me upside the head with a, a drum mallet, which looks very furry, but actually has a nice hard core inside of it. Yeah, I would uh, like it to be noted that I did not know it had a steel core. I no, thought she, it was she thought it was perfectly nice. But so, um, yeah, so that was our, that was our introduction. But, uh, it's like a rom-com so beginning. So <laughs> it is, right? It's pretty bad. Um, yeah, but... We had some we had some classes together. Um, we had a chemistry class together. If, again, yeah, you want to talk the wrong com, right? At that time, I wasn't a member of the church. Um, I actually I mentioned you know being curious and having having a variety of hobbies. So I was actually the one who asked her for a copy of the Book of Mormon because I thought, oh well, this is this is an interesting thing. It's important to her, so I might as well just see what it is. So I actually I read that and was like, oh cool, this is this is all awesome and and it's great and I I feel the spirit and I want to get baptized. And my parents were. A little weirded out, to say the least. Um, to say they were a they lot were they were a lot weirded out. Um, and then and so they had me wait wait another year, and I breezed through the missionary discussions and just kind of waited out the year, and then got baptized uh, in the middle of the the Chena River, which was you know somewhere I don't know 
It's like it's, 32 it's, degrees I, I don't in the summer. Yeah, I don't know how cold. It's cold. You're There's a pioneer. A, yeah, a pioneer, right? <laughs> Log cabin and, and rivers getting baptized, right? So went off and did uh, a year and a half at BYU and then took um, pretty much my entire life savings and, and threw it at a mission and went to, to Denver South. We got back. We actually got married fairly shortly after that. We got married four months to the day after Four months, we got right. Home. But I guess at that point, we'd known each other for quite a while. I got a, a job offer from IBM. And so I, I interned at IBM for four years while I was doing finishing my degree and doing my master's. Um, and so at that point, I was gonna, we were going to have to be moving, you know, moving over the summer. And so we were like, oh, well, it's going to be sad. I just got back from a mission. We're going to be gone again for another few months. And I, I don't know who it was. Maybe one of our parents had said, well, you, you guys are going to end up married anyway. Why don't you just get married? And so we, we actually said, Shh, that's probably makes sense. And we did. We pulled together a wedding in six weeks. Yeah. It was nuts. Wow. So, I mean, so, really, go ahead. So, what year was that? 2004. 2004. Okay. That's when we got married. That's when we got married. Oh, well, there you go. I'm just trying to gauge, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 37. Okay, okay. You, you and I are the same age. James, are you 36? Uh, yeah, I am. Yeah. Hey. I just oh, my birthday was Halloween, so I, uh, I had to actually think about that. Because it just Twin couples. Over. Twin couples. Perfect. <laughs> Then I guess uh, as I finished finished up school, um, got a job at Amazon, uh, moved to Seattle about 10 years ago. I, that takes us through kind of a, the early part of our life. But yeah, I, I think... You're not missing much. No. Yeah. Okay. So I just want to go back. I did have a question, James, about your family. What was their reaction? Did you grow up in a religious home? No. Or... Um, did you ha- already have a belief in God? Like, what what did it mean for you to join the church? Sure. So, I mean, um, my my mother was raised Catholic, uh, and my dad was a spiritual in nature kind of way. Um, I think a lot of like a lot of Alaskans are, and in the independent. I don't need an organized religion. I, I do my own thing, and I'm nice to people, and, and that's what counts. So, no, I wasn't I wasn't raised in a religious home, and in fact, I. I think really between like the Book of Mormon and talking with Denise and some other Christian friends that I had, you know, this idea of, of feeling this kind of a thing, which which the church calls the spirit, was a really new emotion to me. I was, it was something that I, I really wasn't prepared to understand or process very well. And I think it, my parents weren't either. They, they, they thought it was kind of weird. This like what we can't really relate to, to what you say that you're, you're feeling. So they definitely wanted to wanted me to kind of slow down a little bit, you know, eventually, you know, going on a, a mission was definitely hard for them not being able to talk to me. And I, I know there was a, a point when my mom tried to get me tickets to go see the Nutcracker. She was like, I, you know, <laughs> the, church, the church is super conservative. You had capitalism, the classical music. So you should be able to go see the Nutcracker. And she called up the mission president and said like, Hey, I wanted my son to go to the Nutcracker. And he's like, no, it's out of his own boundaries. And she was just crushed. Um, oh, and then we got back, we got married, and then they couldn't come to the temple, obviously, and so they couldn't see us get married, and so they were they were crushed again. Um, so they they had, they had were they were they silently crushed, or did they talk to you no. about? No, no, they weren't. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think they were they were remarkably patient in retrospect. Now that I'm a parent, oh yeah, I, they were super patient, but not, not silent. silent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very patient, but you knew that it was a problem. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. But, I mean, I was also very, 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 very much fully in. I mean, there was a, there was a point in my senior year where, where uh, I, was, I was questioning whether my parents should buy Grey Poupon mustard because it had, had white wine in it. And I was like, but this is <laughs> might be against the word of wisdom, guys. And they were just like, oh, shut up. Oh, please. Oh, my gosh. Uh, oh, my gosh, the Grey Poupon. Uh, you know, I mean, 
but I was, you know, it was, I was very new to it and very much um, fully, fully on board. I'd heard all the talks of, you know, being, you know, that kind of fully committed attitude, um, yeah. you know, mighty change of heart, Alma the Younger, kind of like, you go at it, you obey with exactness. Um, I, I was, I was all, I was all in for sure. Yeah, you were good well, at it. I think that's very admirable because I think it says a lot about your character, you know, it, um, I mean, it doesn't matter where you're at now, but I think it is important that once you commit, you commit. And so good, good for you. Yes. But, but my poor parents, for sure. They, uh, yeah. uh, they, they, they were as patient as they, as they could be, but, um, but it was, it was hard on them. Yeah, of yeah. course. So Denise, walk us through up to when you got married and through the early, early stages of the marriage. Well, I was born in the church, like Brigham Young is my sixth great uncle, I think. Lorenzo Snow is in there. Like there's like three or four prophets in my genealogy. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I was very overtly Mormon for you to be asking me for a book of Mormon. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was I was all in. It was one of the very few constants that I had in my life because we were moving around all the time. So, yeah, I was, like, super involved, super active, Laurel president, seminary president, all that. Got to Can I ask, when when you're moving ahead. around, are you going to, I mean, from place to place, you're finding the new ward um, yep. or branch, and did you find, you, you mentioned that was kind of a constant for you. Were there things that were different from going from Japan to Arizona to Alaska? Were there Were there differences that, not necessarily bad differences, but differences that made you that were noticeable? Uh, yes and no. The, the nice thing about the military is that after a while you start to know people. So like I had a guy who went to my high school that I had known when I was seven in Japan. And so the military culture tends to, tends to stay pretty constant, but then each place you're in has its own flavor, especially a place like Japan. And we had Japanese members in our branch and military people in our branch. Mm. Some wards were a lot closer than other wards. And I mean, Alaska is a place all on its own. It's got a very, very definite character to it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, each ward was different, but it was relaxing to know. Like, I always know what I always knew what the next lesson was going to be. Right. Like we leave Arizona and I know what the primary class is going to be when we get up to Alaska. Right, so it's constant, something that you're yeah, familiar nice. with. That's good. Yeah. So now you're at BYU. Now I'm at BYU, and I was actually really, really sick most of the time I was at BYU. I had to have my face reconstructed my freshman year, and it Wait, me... tell us about that. What happened? Uh, what happened was military medicine was not what it is. And nobody realized that I had problems with my jaws that weren't cosmetic until it was too late. And nobody in Alaska knew how to fix it. Mm. So um, my jaws didn't grow from the time I was nine or 10. So the top half of my face was like adult size and the bottom half of my face is small child size. Yeah, we got down to Utah and they knew how to fix it there. So I had like I had a bunch of teeth removed and I had surgery and had to have my top jaw broken. And it was all kinds of fun. It's just wow. what you want your freshman year of college. It was great oh, for you. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I couldn't say my name. I couldn't say T or D and I lived in 210 T hall DT. Oh, 
gosh. Nobody knew where I lived, and I answered to Jenny for a year. Because <laughs> that was as close as I could get to say my name. And meanwhile, uh... I was the new convert. And you were the new convert. So here's me looking crazy. I was not in a good spot for a lot of my freshman year. And there's James, the shiny new convert, and like every single woman in his ward wanted to date him. At I first, until the RMs one, got back. The RMs got back and it was changed. The right, right. Yeah, well, yeah. But, yeah. But it was, That's the it, nature of BYU. You just want to date anyone around you. <laughs> yeah, that, but he yeah. was like especially shiny. <laughs> Yeah, I can mold him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, we have in our in our relationship history, we have a day. Uh, I guess we refer to it as change of policy day because she was going through a rough time, and I knew it, and I was, I didn't want to pry and step on things, and I was enjoying, um, you know, all the kind of date a bunch of people and yeah, and see you were things. enjoying your harem. No, I have much more respect <laughs> than to use that word to describe any of the lovely women at BYU, but um, they. I think it, it somewhere it was really towards the end of the year. Um, just kind of decided that you were you were you were such a constant companion for me that you know kind of you were where I wanted to spend spend my life with, not in the marriage sense, but just to be around um, the the thing that you knew you knew where I'd been, you knew you knew about me, and so um, I think there was someday someday in the spring I we just, it it just came April. up. It was April. It was like April 3rd. I remember. Yeah. April 3rd. You remember? Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't know exactly what I did, but just kind of, kind of just grabbed you. wouldn't leave and, me alone. It was, it was like, awesome. Hey. Um, and so I think that's probably when our, our, our dating got serious. Before then, we were always kind of like, everyone knew we were serious, but we didn't want to admit it because that was against like, the rules. you were, you weren't supposed to date steady, right? Especially if you're, before you go on a mission and get, you know, attached and everything. So we, we tried and even before I left, I, I maintained the illusion, the self-illusion that we were not that much yeah. together. But we really were. We totally were. You can't see us right now, but it's, while you're talking, <laughs> Alan and I have our like bottom lip puckered and we're like puppy dog eyes at each other because it's <laughs> so, it just is so sweet to hear. I just love that. The rom-com moved from drum hitting in the head to the to the cute. I, got, I have part, to be around right? this person yeah. moment. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was. Um, and then and then came the mission. Yeah. So he went on his mission. That was, what, sophomore year? Yeah, the middle of sophomore year. Yeah. So it, after I got my face reconstructed, it took me a long time to learn to eat again. And you know, starving for a few months kind of wrecks your body. And I was really, really sick. So I never went on a mission or anything because I couldn't do it. So, yeah, I was at BYU for a couple of years, and I went on the odd date, but none of them were as good as James. No close, <laughs> like, no yeah, close okay. calls, huh? <laughs> no, there were no close calls. It's like, no, you were all markedly inferior. Uh, <laughs> I love it. You're, you guys are ferociously in love. It's yeah, great. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> kind of are. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that is true. Yeah, it's probably true. That's so, good. Uh, I got my degree in linguistics and taught ESL for a while after I graduated and while James was working on his master's. Then I got pregnant with our first and was so ridiculously sick that I was like, I never want to work again. Yeah. And so I was mommy for quite a while until they got old enough for me to start teaching. Let's just skip ahead a little bit to where the faith crisis started and who did it start with about what year or, you know, how long has it been? Well, so I mean, um, that's it's an interesting question because I, I don't, I don't know that a faith crisis 
starts instantly for everybody. Some people they do, mm-hmm. they, they stumble mm-hmm. across something. Mm-hmm. For me, it was probably a much longer, much, much longer slide. And it probably started um, in my first area on my mission, um, really. And I, my, my, my trainer was a very, very interesting character, um, really, really believed and thought that he had, um, had a great understanding of what would make a great missionary and that he had a lot of nuance and things. I think his, his father was a professor of religion at BYU, Idaho and things. And, um, and he still, but on the other hand, he, he also didn't quite stick to some of the peculiars of getting up at, you know, six thirty or getting out the door and he would sometimes sleep in. But, but well, I think, was, the, I mean, it turned him into a spectacularly abusive man. Yeah, the, the challenge for me there was that I, I was coming on there with a, that very naive new missionary thing, and I didn't expect everyone to be perfect, but I, yeah. but I also didn't expect to be kind of berated on, a, on a, a fairly regular basis by my senior companion for things like how you're knocking on the door. Was it or or like, and he, wow. would, he would just go, you know, ch- kind of chew into me like, Elder, you can't do that. People won't come to the door. You have to be this way. And, uh, you well, know, we all recognize that the second one was the correct. Knock. Exactly. <laughs> right. Um, and you know, things like, you know, companionship study that would, or, you know, we're supposed to talk about our issues and, and he would just lay into me for like, you know, 20, 30 minutes and then say, it would not let me speak and then say, Hey, okay. I know that has to be fair. It's your turn. And then, I'd say, I have to say, well, I understand where you're coming from. And I would start to talk, and about a minute later, I, I realized he was asleep and snoring, um, you know. And so it was, it was three months of that, and just constant. You're doing this wrong. You need to do this. But I really love serving with you, Elder. It's great. I think he, he said it was like a marriage. He was the husband. I needed to follow his his righteous lead. And if I did, everything would be great. Which is a great, great setup for marriage, right? Right. And so at, at the end of that, I I I, I walked away from it I'm feeling just really really, 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 really beat down. And I, I knew all the promises of you'll, you'll, you know, zoned conferences, yeah, everything will be great. You'll, you'll baptize people if you're just more obedient. And I was, I was, like I said, I, I was avoiding great Poupon mustard. I, I had the exact obedience down to a science. And, and of course those, those promises of, of that were nothing in the face of like, you know, um, more, more popular missionaries who were considerably less obedient. So it was a weird, it was a weird three months for me. And my next companion, my next companion was just surprised when I would knock on a door and ask, is that one okay? He was like, dude, chill. The reason I, I point to that as kind of a start of a faith crisis is because there was a, a, a something to get through that that had to change inside me to start to understand that more than just following and just, oh, um, I had to have a, a different kind of inner spiritual strength right it took a certain kind to to buck the trend and go against my parents wishes and get baptized but you still had the support of you know the prophets and the apostles and everything and feeling very much alone your my spirituality had to be something that i completely took ownership over it couldn't be any more just you know you're part of you're part of this great effort and that's all it is there had to be something deeper um and so i came back a little bit, I think a little bit wary, a little bit cautious of authority, a little bit compassionate in a different way. Yeah, um, it was like when he came back, I knew something had gone wrong. Huh. But he was, because, you know, we wrote each other back and forth the whole time he was on his mission. And so I knew something had gone wrong, but I didn't know how badly wrong it had gone until I tried to ask him about his mission. And it was like, I had never said anything. And he never ignores me. Like, he might be like, 
I'm busy, or I can't talk right now because he gets really focused. But he never ignores me. And it was like I hadn't said anything. And so I would try to be like, you know, it's like maybe he didn't hear me. And I'd be like, hey, what about this? And it still like shot right through his head. He literally could not talk about it. It was crazy. Mm. So I, I think coming out of that, in in some ways that like the the church talks about, you know, these these kind of dark moments and these personal Gethsemanes and things. And I, I I don't need to get into the details. I know again, people have, have far crazier things happen to them on their mission. Sure. Um, but but some something. I think something started to click that faith in God for me was more than just following rules. Faith in God involved a, a passionate tenacity that if God was there, you had to keep doing the right thing. Even if everyone else around you was a jerk, even if everyone else around you was wrong, even if the um, authority structures you trusted in failed and your parents were mad at you because you were getting married in the temple. And I mean, there's, when all of that doesn't quite work out the way it's supposed to, you do the right thing um, and you don't let go um, and you, you don't give up and you don't give up on, on your belief in doing what's right and just kind of go along with the crowd. And I, it's maybe one of those moments that's kind of hard to explain mm-hmm. um, unless you've kind of ex- experienced something kind of like that. But, but, you know, I had, I had some mission companions that were great. One of my favorite ones was Elder Duff. Um, he was a convert as well. And we would sit and we would discuss you know, we would discuss the interesting things that we saw. We would discuss the curious cases of the children who were too getting up and saying, you know, I want to bear my testimony. I know the church is true. I know my family loves me and I love them too. And it was a sing-song rhyme that they had. And we, as missionaries, we got to move around um, in Colorado and we'd see these rhymes spread culturally, right? And we'd say, you know, is this really, is this really God telling a two-year-old that the church is true or not? Or are they just literally repeating what they, what they heard and you know, is it weird that we make we make kids do that? And we would, we would discuss being gay, and you know, is that biological? Is there is that something they can just change? And we would have heated debates about it. He he was a great companion. Later on, he he left the church before I did. So so there were moments of of really good things in there as well, but also some also some places that really um, apparently were more painful than I than I realized. Yeah. And I think it was hard for Denise to see when she came so, back. Yeah. So a lot of the seeds planted on the mission, take a few minutes and get us to critical mass. What brought it so up to that point? Ten, so so ten, 10 more years almost go by, right? Yeah, about. About 10 years. Um, like in, in, so this would be like six years ago. And, uh, it, you know, throughout all that time, I spend a lot of time kind of tampering down on, on you know, just, just read the scriptures, just read the scriptures, just go to the temple or read the just focus on the basics and focus on the basics. And there was, there was a point when, when questions and concerns that I had, things that bothered me, the things that I wanted to discuss in Sunday school, I wanted to discuss the two-year-olds and the testimony. Like, is that really a testimony? I want to discuss, you know, the, the, how you really differentiate the, the theoretical God answering a prayer and you just kind of casually observing something that really wasn't related at all because clearly other people in other religions did it. Uh, I wanted to discuss the meaty and the weightier aspects of the gospel, uh, not the deep doctrine, not the obscure stuff, but, you know, what it really means to have a testimony and to know what what really what really happens, what's just kind of our emotions and what, what's really actually God, God. Did but you try I, to bring that stuff up 
Oh, well, sure. But I mean, that's not that's not how Sunday school goes. <laughs> oh, I know. You know, I guess I guess like was 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 the reaction that you got when you tried to bring up some of those things part of the crisis for you? Well, no, I think part of the crisis was just tampering down on that that natural tenacity and the creativity and that desire for truth. The thing that led me to the church and to say, no, just just go back to just focus on these things. Just go back to do this. Just go back to, you know, the church is true. The Book of Mormon is true. Joseph Smith's a prophet and, and kind of those surface level things. Um, but I think in, inside part of that was there, there were questions. There were things that I needed to discuss, places spiritually I needed to go. And I, and I was trying to follow the council to say, don't go there. Don't don't just just stay kind of there. And I think, you know, some of that might be might have been changing. I, and I know that theoretically the church wants you to build your own deeper testimony. But I think the way you approach those questions um, it is not always received well. with a lot of understanding. And right. so Denise noticed that and she noticed that I was just not thriving. And then she, she put together these things of like, you know, I, I've seen you with your testimony on fire and I've seen you with it beat down after a mission. And I, I you know, what, what do we need to do to help you, to help you really rekindle that? And, and when we discussed things and she said, you know, go, go read books by general authorities, go let yourself be curious and learn, you know, Sunday school isn't the right place for that. Of course not. You're not going to get it there. Why would you entirely expect that? Um, but that doesn't need to stop your spiritual growth. And I was like, okay, let's do it. And so I picked up rough stone rolling. <laughs> Denise, did you have, did you recommend anything to him or? Did you have any reservations in your, I know you're making this suggestion, but like, what are you thinking while this is happening? Well, I was thinking that clearly something was wrong. Like we would come back from church every Sunday and he looked miserable. And after you've known James for any length of time, like, you know, that look, and it's when he's supremely frustrated. It's not. It's not a boredom thing. It's not a, I'm just in a bad mood thing. It's like extreme frustration. He's one of the most even-keeled people I know. And so if he's upset enough to look like that, something's actually wrong. And so I just kind of sat him on the couch one Sunday night. And I was like, what is wrong? Because I, could, I couldn't figure it out. And he starts bubbling up with all of these doctrinal questions like how do you know when something is actually an answer to prayer how are you supposed to tell on the important things if it's the spirit or if it's just you and what do you do like on the mission when people when they promise you baptisms if you're obedient and that doesn't happen and everyone knows that of course it doesn't happen but they say it anyway well and they promise you in the name of god that should carry some weight and so he starts bobbling with all of these questions. I mean, probably we're talking like 10 years, 12 years worth of things <laughs> that I've been like, no, just keep it. Just focus. Just yeah. just focus. Just read the scriptures. Just say your prayers. Just it focus. It all comes out this one it's, night. Yeah. And one night. Denise, does this like freak you out? Um, what 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 percentage? If there's a if there's a scale of concern, don't worry, we'll get to freak him. out later. This oh, is yeah. still <laughs> this is not freak out. Sorry. This is not the freak out. Okay, okay, yeah, you can let us know later when the freak out happens. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, it will get there. <laughs> so my reaction was, I, if you stop James from trying to learn, you'll either get steamrolled or you'll get a very sad James. And I didn't want either of those things. My first reaction was, you're not going to find things that are going to tell you that the church isn't true because it is. 
so go forth you know read right. read stone rolling i think i suggested rough stone yeah because rob read it yeah rough stone. but yeah. you also suggested you know like books that like iring had written or yeah. maxwell right yeah yeah, yeah like, go and go and find commentary find something did you, did you guys ever see short circuit yes oh, yeah Johnny yeah, Fike. James is like the robot from Short Circuit. You have to give mm-hmm. him more input. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, go find input. Because, you know, I trusted him to not go on... Like, well, the church some, is true. Yeah, the church so, is true. And I trusted you not to go on some, like, raving anti-Mormon site. Which you I, don't, I don't even think we even considered that. No. 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 So I was like, yeah, go. And you'll be fine. And you'll be happier. And... <laughs> like, okay, so, so James, you... She gives you permission, basically, and and not that you need it, but she's like, go, you know, go search out and go study and go find. And so obviously you go to do that. And my question is, is is she along for the ride while you are doing that? Are you when you learn something, are you coming to her and talking to her about it or are you keeping Um, it to yourself? So so this is the interesting thing. Kind of. Not for it was a while. Well, it, well, at first because there's, at first because there's nothing to bring her along for, and then when there is, it's clearly something I didn't understand or have context on. And then when I realized the gravity of what I understood, it was too late. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't so much that I didn't want to take her along. Mm-hmm. It was just that there was no need. It was like. Okay, I could share everything that I'm reading, and I share everything that I would. I would occasionally mention something like, "Wow, this is kind of interesting." She's like, "Huh, okay." Um, to use a very Alaskan metaphor, it's, <laughs> it, it was very like an avalanche. You know, it's just a few snowflakes. You, you see snowflakes all the time. No big deal. And oh, that you know, a little bit of snow rolled down the hill next to me. Still not a big deal. And before you know it, the whole mountainside is sliding down, and you're doomed. So I think it, it really took me about, I don't know, nine months or so of just kind of stuff and it, it, things that just kind of went down the rabbit hole more of like, you know, I want to be sensitive to, to the listeners and everything yeah. like that. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Yeah. For sure. But but I think I think it's probably safe enough to say that there are there are aspects of church doctrine and history that um, are not have not been taught factually accurately. And I and regardless of how long it takes the church to kind of to catch up to that, you know, there, there are aspects of things that are, are not as simply the way that they were, they were presented, right? Um, certainly not to me as a, as a convert in the middle of Alaska with no access to BYU vaults and, and archives and, and those kinds of things. And I came to the conclusion at one point, I think probably after nine months of research, that there were, there were things that the prophets had done that I considered not just a mistake, because I, I would never expected perfection out of the prophets, um, but actually significantly immoral. And, and in, in coming to those conclusions, I didn't, I didn't do it so lightly. I would, I, I would read journal articles and psychology journals. And I, you know, I looked around for every way of disconfirming the sinking feeling I had that some things were actually, actually very wrong. And I think there was, there was one week where I just I eventually told Denise, I'm like, this is actually just wrong. I really, really think this is wrong. That was the freak out. There was the freak out. And then we had another, we, then we had a very interesting summer where I, I was, I still, I still tried to stay in. I tried to find a way of making it work. I, what I looked, summer is this? Is this 2014 or something? No, because it was 2013? like 2013. 2013, right? Yeah. Interrupt me. I'm, I'm telling this from my perspective of things. <laughs> so that was, it was in, it was in April. Yeah. When you, when you came to me, you were just like, this is, I just cannot 
do this anymore. I didn't quite say it like that, though, right? Because no, you didn't say it like I, that. There were some things that were wrong. Yeah. But I, but I didn't say I can't do this anymore. No, you did say, what would you do if I didn't think the Book of Mormon was true anymore? And now I'm wigging out. It was like a month later where you're like, yeah, I don't think this is, I don't think this is true. It, to me, it felt like, like the world had flipped upside down and nobody had noticed except for me. Everybody's still, you know, going about their business and walking on the ceiling and not at all worried about the fact that all the dishes are on the ceiling and broken and it... it the world turned literally upside down to you. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, that was, that was reality. You know, you get married in the temple and you have kids and you raise them and they go off to BYU and temple marriages and then you and we go be mission presidents or something. You know, it was, that was reality. And then it just did not exist anymore. And I knew, like, I know you well enough to know that there was no way that you did it for a stupid reason, that you hadn't done the research, that you hadn't tried everything you could think of to make this okay. And so I knew there was no talking you out of it. Not that, not that I would have tried to talk you out of it, but I knew there were the, the chances of me finding a place where you had gone wrong, where I could show you, no, you made a mistake. Here's where it is. And here's, here's what you should have done. So let's just, let's just fix that. I, I knew that the odds of finding a spot like that were very, very small. So Denise, if I can play on that just for a second was there any part of that process that that you felt that fault for I can't tell you how many times I have kicked myself for saying just go do just go read whatever you want you're not going to find something that's going to tell you the truth isn't true yeah that, that turned out to not be yeah <laughs> so but for a for a while you kicked yourself over that oh I kicked myself over that for years it mm. was because I mean there was that first year where you were kind of doing all the research and you were very quiet and so I was like yeah yeah, yeah. everything's fine I well, really every time I found something I was fine. like no I mean this is just this is this is this is okay this is we'll figure yeah. it out and and so you there wasn't any make it fine. I mean there wasn't any reason to kind of say anything and I mean that's kind of one of our biggest regrets is not saying something early and it and it probably I didn't because I I still trusted and believed that there was no actual problems. I guess it, it would be like if you're swimming at a, the local swimming pool and you have such utter confidence that there are no sharks in that pool that when you see a fin, you say, it doesn't really matter how realistic that fin is. It's not a real shark. Until you feel like there's blood in the water and it's a, it's all of a sudden, the, it, this, this is not what I thought it was. I think that's what being in a marriage going through a faith crisis is like. You're not necessarily trying to hide anything or at least I wasn't no, you until were just, you were just trying to find a way to make it okay because I, I trusted that everything was the way I the way it really was and I was just missing something until I realized that I, I wasn't so yeah I I spent a lot of time kicking myself I spent a lot of time being like we should have done FAG more we should have been better about scripture study I should have been better about all of those things James let's do this you you mentioned that you you tried to make it work for a while. Sure. Spend just a half a minute talking mm. about 
why it didn't. Yeah. So why, I mean, why it didn't work, and then and then the the moment that you you say you're done, and what that so, looks like for the marriage. I, that that's the next four months or so from from April six really six yeah. months. You know, during that time, I baptized my son and and felt kind of kind of sick afterwards doing that. Um, I, I you know I read read things um, or listened to like you know, to Lynn's interview on Mormon stories with the Givenses and uh, introduced a little myself a little bit to kind of a, uh, the, you know, an apologetic way of looking at things. But I, I woke up a few nights just, just in, in tears, thinking through all the, the stories I, I'd heard about people who had died and how wonderful it was and how, you know, the, the Mormon funerals, the LDS funerals are, are so, so uh, happy because we know about the plan of salvation and, and then contrasting that to all the lessons I heard about how unhappy and how sad and how horrible it was when, when people would leave and and parts of me feeling like that, you know, if if I were to just walk out in the middle of the night and, and just go for a walk, nobody would have to know what I'm doing. I could just walk and then casually step into the into the street as a truck is coming by. Everyone could have a nice, happy funeral because that's what Mormon funerals are. That's what LDS funerals have, right? Um, everyone would be happy and, and then would say, if they knew that I was going through this faith crisis, they would say, man, isn't it such a, a wonderful blessing that Heavenly Father took him back, you know, before he could be led astray? And, and that, that, that state, ironically, there was a part of me that, that didn't want to do that, but also almost felt like, but, you know, it, it, it wasn't tempting, but it was. And, and so I would, I would lay there and cry for hours, wondering if, even though I knew none of my friends and family would ever want me to do that. But if I did, if it wouldn't actually be better for them. And, and I read, I, I tried to try to see if I can make an apologetic kind of view work. And, and I even hit a point where I realized that all of this creativity, all of this stuff that I had, I actually, and this was the really scary part, as I could do it. I had to take this part of myself that just was relentlessly honest and I had to kill it. If I did that, if I really, really embraced that and said, I don't know, I just don't understand, everything's too complicated, or I could, I could, I, I understood then enough about how some, some people think <laughs> to say, I could, I could reason my way through this, call it the spirit. Uh, and people would, would say that it's a, it's a great gospel scholar, right? Because these are kind of the deep doctrine things you hear. I, I could be one of those people. I could be that, but I wouldn't be me. Right. I would I would lie to myself, and I and and after you know the thoughts of physically ending who I was, the thoughts of now you could you could spiritually end who you are, that kind of honest part of you, just rip it out, get rid of it. Who so loses their life for the gospel, right? Lose it and and, and find yourself. It was tempting to do that. And he sat me down one night and told me all of this. Because you hadn't mentioned any of that before. Yeah. Where, you know, he was just like, I could, I could just step in front of a car and wouldn't, wouldn't everybody actually be happier? No, 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 we wouldn't be. And then him saying, you know, I could, I could change myself into this. And here's how I could do it, and it would be easier. And wouldn't wouldn't that be better? That part of James that is so driven to find to be the best that he knows how to be. 
that is so stinking full of integrity, you couldn't bend him if you tried. And to have him say, I could just, I could just end that. I, I could be... I could be guy. that mission president. Yeah, you could be the mission president. Because I always wanted to go on a mission and I couldn't do it. Not that I would aspire for that, but that life... Yeah, the, They like go to the temple and, yeah. the, you know... That whole life. That whole life. And you're, like, holding it there in front of me. And we were sitting in the office. We were sitting in this room. This room. This very room, yeah. yeah. And, you know, he's just got it in his hands in front of me. And he's like, I could do this for you. And he meant it. Like he he totally meant it, and all all it would have cost would have been that part of James, and I couldn't do it. I was just like, no, I. That's like the one thing I never would have forgiven you for. Would have been ending that part of you. And, and I think, and at that moment, that that was when I decided that I, I would keep going to church, but I would, um, I would stop paying tithing. And I would yeah. respectfully turn down callings, and and I and it was it was something that took a different kind of faith because I had to say now, not knowing that God was real, but if He was, that being honest would count. That I I made a choice somewhere along the way to not throw that away, and if I was absolutely wrong about anything, then then having faith that He would be able to correct me. But that at least I would be able to say I did that, and I did it with for my kids. I didn't, I didn't lie when it was tempting. I didn't bury what I thought I understood. I didn't hide those talents under a bushel because I was afraid. I, I did it, um, and that required a different kind of faith to step away from what you had thought you knew was true, what you kept your parents out of your wedding for and gave up your life savings for, and to take that and say, I understand why I did that all, but I have to be still honest now, and, and I have to keep that part of me alive. Um, maybe even not for my own sake, but my kids deserve it. My kids deserve a dad. My kids deserve a dad who doesn't, who doesn't lobotomize a part of himself. And then to hope that if there was a God, if this actually, if I was wrong, that he would understand. Um, it's, that's a, that's a scary kind of, kind of faith. So I just, I mean, I, we're both like tearing up right here <laughs> because sorry. you, ta you touched on a few things that are just like so deeply personal. So thank you for sharing those. Cause I, I think, and Alan and I have only experienced it because people reach out to us and they have these feelings of it would just be better if I were gone. And you would never want anyone to act upon those things. And and then also the the sacrifice, I think, that you are willing to make for your marriage and for each other. It goes both ways, James on your side and Denise as well as on yours. And so, like, I just feel so good about what you just said to us. I'm, I mean, thank you very much for being so vulnerable. You're welcome. It's hard to want to say anything because you guys are both so well-spoken. Yeah. <laughs> um, don't want to interrupt the, the beauty that's happening. Denise, I love what you said um, that you, you couldn't let him continue uh, and you haven't gotten to the next step of the, of the journey, right? But you couldn't let him let that part of himself die. That in, that integrity part. I think that that's, it really shows that there was, from the from even in the hardest moments when he's saying, 
uh, these things um, and could be so hard to, to hear that you both had each other's best interests well, at the surface. He's my best friend. He always has been. I, there was, there was no, there was no choice there. There was nothing else I ever would have done. Right. But, but I think well, there's, there's still a, there's a, there's an ironic garden of Eden personal story in there too, of, of <laughs> kind of looking at each other and, and saying, this is not what we thought. One of us is eaten of a tree. <laughs> and and now what do we do? No, this is a that's a, a really good analogy and a great transition because Denise talk us through now, you know, stepping out into the wilderness with James and what that was like and what took you from that moment of that harrowing talk that you had to to um your decision to leave the church. So from, I was in for two and a half years after James left. I had every intention of remaining that way. Yeah. So we were also terrified at this point. Oh yeah. I was scared to death. Yeah. I, I have OCD. And so, I mean, anybody would be scared. Anybody would be scared, but I could not turn it off. And so I think it took me the better part of a year to stop freaking out all the time. I mean, I learned... I learned to hold it together so I wasn't terrifying the kids. <laughs> and life has to happen. Life still has to happen. So You were never terrifying the kids. I felt like I was going to it like any moment. <laughs> no, you were fine. You were awesome. But, yeah, it took me it took me a long time to stop wigging out. And I I had I mean I was praying like constantly. I was like, you just need to fix this. <laughs> I like talking to God, not to James. I, I knew James had done the best he knew how to do. And so there's me praying and be like, you need to fix this. I have done everything, everything I can think of. James is a good man. And I absolutely refuse to give up on this. I don't care what anybody says. And if they tell me otherwise, I'm going to walk up to this bishop and tell him to jump off a cliff. <laughs> you will fix this. I mean, I think the ward was mostly okay. No, the ward was not okay. They were just absolutely silent. There was, I mean, people, so it was either that James had never existed and nobody mentioned him ever, or there was one guy who would like stalk me down the halls. He was the elders quorum president. And he'd be like, what can we do to get James back? I'm like, dude, if I knew, I would have already done it. Leave me alone. But I mean, I have to, I have to say, on you know, on that point, there were there were a couple of people that elders quorum president, um, and and a member of the high priest group that, I, somebody else in the elders quorum presidency too. I mean, they they, yeah. they were they were legitimately legitimately listening. Um, they were able to listen to to what I had to say. Um, and I think they were they were never they were never unkind to me. I think they were actually. I I remember saying one time that I was I'm still going to church with you at this time, you know that that they were you know, excellent examples of what to do when somebody has a faith crisis because they didn't approach me as though I did something wrong. No, they were great. Um, they just drove me absolutely well, they insane. Were they were worried. I, they were worried. I was worried, and I just wanted to go to church and not worry. And so that wasn't happening. But it took me the better part of a year to kind of pull myself back together. Then I felt like I was just in this holding pattern of waiting until it was fixed it was kind of like life will really get going again when this is fixed. And that's, that's not a good place to be. Nobody should live there. 
It's and, normal to be there. Yeah, it's normal to be there, but it's a bad place to live. It, it's, it's, it's very a hard. crummy neighborhood. I, I remember I was doing laundry one day, and I was putting clothes away up in our room, trying to think through things and be like, how long is this going to take? How long am I going to have to stay in this spot where I'm worried all the time, where I don't know how to talk to James about so many things. And I mean, we've been best friends since I was 16. There's never been anything that we couldn't talk about. And all of a sudden there's like this huge thing that we can't talk about because I couldn't, I couldn't talk about it without, like I just break down hysterically crying. I couldn't handle it. And so I'm sitting there putting laundry away. There's, was it Second Nephi 225? It's Adam fellow that they might be a menar, that they might have joy. And it occurred to me that that should apply to me too. That living in limbo like I was is not any sort of way to, to have joy. That's not how any loving God would want me to live. When I had an amazing husband, I have great kids. I don't want for a single thing in this world. And I was just sitting in it. I wasn't living in it. You know, I had this fabulous life all laid in front of me and I was just sitting there looking at it instead of doing it. And that seemed all of a sudden very wrong. And I put everything down and I just sat down for a second and it's like, okay, then I'm going to stop fretting and I'm just going to go. I'm going to go and we're going to do life and, you know, James is going to get home tonight. I'm going to make him this fantastic dinner and I'm starting over right here because I'm tired. I can't, I can't do this anymore. And I don't think it's right. Yeah. You got home that night and I like knocked you over as soon as you walked in the door. I was like, hi, I'm so glad to see you mm-hmm. and like dinner and all this stuff. And it got easier from, it didn't get easy. But it was a lot easier from there. And it was it was starting to get, like, I would still massively overreact when he would try and bring things stuff up. Because, I mean, I've been his best friend since we were kids. And so it's really hard on him not being able to talk to me because he was just trying not to hurt me. And it's a terrible place to put somebody where it's like there's this thing that's super important to me and you're my whole world, but you won't talk to me about this. That was, that was terrible. I'm sorry, love. Well, see, I think probably because it was, even, even as I go through all of this, like actually hearing all the details was, was not something you were particularly interested in. And especially after I had made the decision that I'm kind of done, it was doubly so because knowing those details could be terrifying. From my perspective, I wanted to share and I wanted to be open and I wanted to talk. Um, and I had a wife who majored in, and had a degree in linguistics to have a degree in linguistics and to love words since she was a little girl, but not be willing to talk about what the word translation means or Egyptian scrolls um, was it, to me, it felt like something it was, it wasn't right. Like to have, to have these gifts and have communication, but then to have these subjects that were just completely off limits. It, that it was, it was, it was hard. And so I, I felt, I felt distant and I, I think one of the things, you know, maybe I'm reading into it or remembering it wrong, but leading into that was that I think I started to disengage a bit. Yeah. Because I started to realize that, I well, if this is the new normal, if we can't talk about these important subjects, then I'm still extremely committed to Denise. But there's really nothing I'm doing that's going to change this. 
I've tried. I've tried to say things. This is just um, the way things are going to be. And, uh, and so I would kind of, I was not unaffectionate or anything, but I, there was no. a part of me that was, uh, I think, you weren't all there. Uh, there was a part of me that just kind of was like, okay, I guess, I guess this part of me is never going to be something that I can share with anybody. Um, it's, it's going to be alone and it has to be alone. And I don't know any other choice to do this, but it's going to be alone. Um, and even my wife can't share it with me. And I guess, but, but a few months after I made that and I started to kind of disengage, I noticed that she had, she was starting to change her spirituality and she was starting to embrace, she was starting to embrace more than just the gospel letter, but kind of the spirit of things. We, we all go to Sunday school and we would, we would read, um, um, you know, like LDS commentary about the lesson that goes a little bit deeper. And I could see that she was embracing more than just the obey side that I had been as a missionary. And, and I realized that, you know, if, as long as she was able to claim her own spirituality and she wasn't just doing it out of obedience, then maybe it was okay. At one point, I think somebody had stopped her in the hall and asked her if she was, or, you know, the bishop asked her, are you, are you worried about your eternal marriage? And she said, no, he's doing everything he can that's right. And when he's wrong, God will show him it. But right now, I'm not worried. It's the only time in my life I've ever talked back to a bishop. Um, and I, I, think, I think her doing that and telling me about it gave me this confidence that she wasn't only obeying that she really had internalized that this this was her marriage it wasn't just uh, it, it wasn't just a marriage from a celestial kingdom celestial marriage part it was hers and and the spirituality wasn't just hers because it was she was mormon had a testimony it was hers and hers legitimate desire to draw closer to god um, and I, and I realized I could, I would support her with that. And I think that was an important turning part for our marriage. Yeah. Even yeah. if it also made me disengage a little bit, because at least I wasn't angry at her. I, I was trying to figure out a way to make things work in my head. I'm a very logical person by nature. I was seeing things like, you know, like Sunday school, when you're doing the Book of Mormon and you get to the middle of the year and you're in the war chapters in Alma. And you get to, what's his name? Not Amalekiah, his brother. Either one of them. And they're, they're dissenters from the Nephites, right? And so you have this huge, like, multi-week lesson on apostasy. That's going to be and, fun. Yeah, <laughs> it's not fun. You have these Sunday school lessons. And you have one in the Doctrine and Covenants here about Thomas Marsh. And you have, like, all of the apostasy lessons in the Old Testament. So, you know, you have a lot of apostasy lessons in Sunday school. James didn't fit into any of them. So I was kind of having to to forge my own way of looking at things because it just did not work right. otherwise. So, Denise, t get us to critical mass for you when, when you left. So critical mass for me was I was sick and tired of not talking to James. <laughs> it was... Um, and I never gave up. I was very still, even when I was like, okay, I'm okay with this. That would last for about two months. And I'd be like, okay, so can we talk about maybe this now? Yeah, and then she would just kind of shut down and get really mad and slam a door and go hit something in the garage for a while. And I was like, I guess I'm up now. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I, we weren't, we weren't talking about. 
a lot of things, not, not just church stuff, but it was starting to turn into a habit, you know, I'm not talking to him very much about these important things. So I didn't think to mention this important thing that was totally not church related. And I was very much not okay with that. And so I sat myself down one day in April. April is like our April's our magic month. Yeah. Yeah. So I sat myself down one day and I was like, you are going to figure it out right now. You're going to figure out how to talk about this because I didn't want to spend the rest of my life that way. I didn't want to spend the rest of my life missing my best friend. And so I gave myself kind of like a week to get myself ready for it. And then I cornered you after you got home from work one day and it's like, you have half an hour. I can only have a half an hour, yeah, but you like, get half an hour. You get half an hour. You pick one thing, one thing, please, for the love of Pete, keep it to under half an hour and I will try not to lose it. And then you're going to give me like a month and then you're going to pick another thing and you have another half an hour and we're going to start working through until we can talk about this because I'm not okay with the way this is going. No, and just like this interview is supposed to be 45 minutes, and we're already we're already a good hour. <laughs> yeah, it. neither I, of us. I'm not very good at just because well, I, I had fine. a few years of research <laughs> backed up here, and I was like, okay, 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 here we go. Yeah. And it was it was a, it was a little bit of a whirlwind, but it was also it was three hours. It was three hours. It was not a little bit of a whirlwind, and it was not half an hour. Because the one thing that he picked was Joseph Smith. Not just one thing Joseph Smith did or taught. It was Joseph Smith. Like the entire the entire history, yeah. Yeah, like from from age like fourteen to death. <laughs> so It rocked you were, a little bit. What? It rocked your world a little bit. It did. I was I was a wreck at the end. Because like no matter where where you end up in the church, if if somebody you love is going through a faith crisis and you talk to them about it, you're going to have to learn to see at least a few things differently if you want to understand them. Your, your half an hour to three hour long chats followed by a month of, a month of uh, you kind of sorting Processing. things out, that um, process back and forth ended up le- leading you away. Yeah, well. Kind of. Kind, so I was getting a lot more nuanced in how I believed, but it was still, it was still kind of working for me. It was getting less and less so. One day, it was Bill. You guys will have to tell Bill for me. I'll tell um, Bill. James told me about Bill Reel's Facebook feed. And so I followed Bill. Which was actually, I think, it was much more a thoughtful faith at that point. It was. Yeah. This was, this was a couple of years ago. And it was... So it was Bill's, much, Bill's tone has changed a little bit. Yes. He can change he's, he's changed quite a significant. I'm not the person to really criticize anyone for changing. So <laughs> I'm like, you know, props to you, Bill. But, but it was different so, then. So I, Bill was like the only thing keeping me sane. <laughs> and one day it was like, it was right after the, the November exclusion policy for the kids of gay couples. And right. like, I already had a lot of stuff I was trying to make okay. And then there's the three hour Joseph Smith dump. Oh yeah. Which was really difficult. And then one day it was in July and Bill posted a, co- a quote from Richard Bushman saying that the church was going to have to redo the narrative because the current native narrative wasn't sustainable because it wasn't true. And that just broke me. I was like, fine, I'm done. 
Now they need dun 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 dun. Well, you were teaching the youth at the time, and yeah, I think they one of... just called me to be a Sunday school teacher for like the 14 and 15 year olds, and I had a kid in there whose older brother had just come out as gay, and I was like, I cannot do this. And so now you're on the same page, and everything's fine, and nothing to worry about, right? No. Well, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Things are really good. <laughs> no, and you can tell. You can tell that things are really good. So what are you worried about? Maybe we need to get a, Hold on, we're gonna turn this into a therapy session here. I don't figure out what's going on. <laughs> so Jinx is an atheist, and I am not. I think if if you forced me to put a label on myself, I would say that I am a loosey goosey non literal Christian. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know what I would call myself anymore. I believe that we're loved. I believe that there is some form of God, be it he, she, it, or they, and we are loved. And that the Christ I find in the Gospels is worth following. Even if you strip divinity out of it, I would follow that. That's where I landed, as in as much as I've landed. I still feel kind of like I'm, I, I haven't like stopped yet. And I don't, have a place I don't think to, like, we ever should. Yeah, I mean, I hope not, because so far I haven't. <laughs> it's been two and a half years, so you'd think if it was going to happen, it would. So, Denise, let me ask you this, because this is something that Katie and I can't be the experts on, because it's not our situation. With James being an atheist, what are some of the, the misconceptions or things about atheism or atheists that maybe you can dispel for us? I think the first thing that comes to mind is that they're not moral because they don't have somebody making them be moral. Is it, is it Penn and Teller who said, yeah, yeah it's like, I, I rape and kill exactly as many people as I want to, and that is zero. Right. <laughs> um, and then if you need a God to tell you not to do those things, then you have, you have other you issues. You have issues, yeah. yeah. Atheists are generally very good people. They're charitable and generous and loving and kind because that's how they choose to be, not because they're afraid or because not even out of... Not even out of love for a God that you want to please, but because they choose to be really good humans. I mean, all the atheists I know are fabulous people. <laughs> I think it's because in general, people are fabulous people. In general. I yeah. mean, Mormons are fabulous people and um, atheists are fabulous people. And, and, and everyone gets stuck in their own tribal way of thinking and, and is also closed-minded and self-interested as, as groups. But... But I think regardless of how you how you cross those lines, um, the, I, I would I would generally rather know and get to know somebody than not. Yeah, people in general are amazing, and atheists are no exception to that. In groups, lots of people can be jerks, though. Yeah, groups atheists atheists, atheists as well can that, be well, very self righteous. Um, you know, start prowling around our atheism. But another thing would be like your spouse isn't going to go off the deep end. Because they're atheists, they're not going to turn into raging alcoholics or porn addicts. Or... But I mean, none of that's to say that switching, like leaving the church, doesn't have its own challenges. I think it, oh, it totally does. a lot of people struggle to adapt the new yeah. world. Yeah. But, but, but it doesn't guarantee the it. Boogeyman yeah, yeah, yeah. It does, I don't think it guarantees any specific outcome in life. No, no, no. Well, see, that's the thing. That was the other thing on like my, my epiphany day where I was like, I'm supposed to be happy. Nobody knows the future. You do not know the future when you walk into the temple and get married. You just don't. 
And if you're expecting everything, if you, if you expect the person you walk into the temple with to never change, not only is that mistaken, but it's sad. Yeah. Your spouse is still the same person they were the day before they told you. I like that. That's a great message. So, James, I have a question for you. Sure. Is there anything that you've held on to from the church? Like something that the, that you liked that the church taught that you thought, oh, that's something I want to hold on to with my family or my marriage. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, I mean, the very I think the very first lesson, the most moving thing I learned when I when I read the Book of Mormon for the very first time was was Denise had asked me to read Third Nephi eleven, but I was very um, I was very new to things, and so I read Third Nephi two instead. Which you read is, it Roman numerals. I read it as Roman numerals. So this <laughs> is this is when going God is just like chewing everybody out, and I, I think right. Third Nephi two is apocalyptic. It's a, apocalyptic. Oh, wow, I wonder why she chose this one. Um, but there was there was one part in there that hit me hit me hard at the time because I was I was a different kind of atheist then. I was I was a little bit smug about things, and there was a, a scripture that said that the people had become you know hard in their hearts, and they they had learn to you know not really accept any miracle and it had struck me hard and i think um to this day it's i still i still remember to be um try to be softer uh, and more human than kind of the analytical side of me would would be you know to reach outside of my hermit log cabin uprising upbringing um and 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 go and talk to people and be not human is the right word but i guess less less hard-hearted uh, and so I, I would say that that's that's the first lesson that I learned from from the uh, from being a member, and probably one of the most most enduring ones. Along with that, I want to just do a callback. We talked a little bit about your parents and how they were vocal about just your choices, and you've kind of gone through this evolution now of yourself. Mm-hmm. And what what are their feelings now when you told them, you know, I'm I'm not. I'm leaving the church. I'm an atheist. Like what, what has been their reaction? Um, I, I think they've, they've been nothing but kind of relieved. I, they were, I think they were always a little bit worried that there was some kind of undue control. You know, it, it just seemed weird to them that their son would all of a sudden throw his life savings out onto a mission to go to Colorado and then not be able to see the nutcracker. Right. And so I think there were, there was a part of them that was just relieved to see like, Oh, okay. He's we're, we know that he's making his own decisions now. And and then that's kind of one of the things that parents want for their kids is to know that at least they're, they're, you know, if not following in their footsteps, at least making the choices that they choose to make instead of having them made by made by somebody else. And so I, that made them them feel very. I think that made them feel very relieved. Yeah, Denise, how about for you? What what was the experience like with what you want to share about telling your family about your in your new position? Hmm. My my family was less than thrilled. I was I was a very zealous kid. You were all in too. Yeah, I was I was super all in. Like my family knew that James had been having a lot of trouble with the church. I I hadn't told them when I started having trouble with the church, and maybe I should have. I don't know. I I didn't want to hurt them. I didn't want to make them worry. Because everything's still going to be fine. Yeah, everything's still going to be fine. You still have a testimony. Yeah. It's still, yeah. Yeah, I was like, everything's going to be fine. There's no need There's no need to worry them. And so when I did tell them, it, it didn't go spectacularly well. Yeah, it, did, it didn't go. Your sister felt pretty hurt. 
Yeah, my sister was pretty upset. I mean, they were all they were all upset. My sister is just a little bit more vocal than the rest of them about being upset. I mean, they don't they don't treat us badly, and they no. they haven't tried to reconvert us or no. anything. No, they're they're very respectful of where we're at. If I wish, like as much as I wish that I could talk to James when I was still in and he was out, I wish it was easier to talk to my family about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I wish I wish I could make them understand. I don't I don't have any desire to deconvert them. If it's working for them, they're happy and they're safe. I don't care. Mm. They, you know, I wish I could make them understand where I'm at, just because I have kids. And I can imagine how disconcerting and scary that would be mm-hmm. to have them to have them turn on a dime like that. It, you know, that would be frightening. And I would like to give them reasons so that they didn't have to feel scared. I don't want them to be scared or worried. That's very that's a very loving viewpoint because I think that so much of the time we just think about how is this affecting me not how is it affecting those around me so that's i really love that viewpoint thank you i don't think you need both people to leave the church to have a healthy marriage. no you don't no you don't and that's one of our one of our greatest worries in sharing these stories is is that where denise eventually chose to to go herself it should in no way invalidate the things that we fought for in a marriage to make it work no matter what happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, a lot of the groundwork that makes this really good today is it's because of that. We, yeah. The yeah. stuff we fought tooth and nail for during those two and a half years. And, and I, I would definitely, I wouldn't want anyone to feel that we're coming at this from the perspective of this is how you make a marriage work. You both leave the yeah, church and it's all good. That's not that's fine. not not the point at all. In fact, it's it's so very much not the point. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and thank you for saying that because that's absolutely our our motto, our mantra, our slogan, however our catchphrase, however you want to put it is there is no prescribed ending that is best for everyone and that's the point. That's yeah. the point. I mean, you Denise, you said it earlier of if it works for for your family, oh my goodness, I don't want to be the one to to make it not work. Like no. let it let it work for them. And in a marriage, if it works that one is in and one is out, or if the one that is out decides to go back in, I mean, uh, James, you talked about um, having to kill that integrity part of you, and I would imagine that most people would be in the same boat. But if there is, and I'm I know there are people that just say, you know what, I don't believe this is true anymore. I'm going to, but I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be the one that stays in. And if it works for them, do it. And that's, that's the whole idea behind us interviewing couples is because, you know, as many as people who identify with us, there were going to be so many more that identify with the both of you. And that's, that's the point of all of this is to say marriages can work and it's going to be hard. And, but it's doable and it can be doable in every different stage you're in. There are going to be points where doable is also terrifying mm-hmm. and it's okay. Absolutely. Like if you, if you are in a spot where your marriage is worth fighting for, then you go and you do those terrifying talks and it doesn't have to end in any way other than you go off to bed together and snuggle up and go to sleep. 
Yeah. That's the only ending that has to happen. But I, I, I will, I mean, I'll always caveat that, that out in, in terms of a large audience, right? That. Well, for some people, it's not going to. Yeah, I mean, that, like, like. It won't work. Some, some things, some marriages don't work. And, and some, some of it isn't because of the church. And sometimes people go off the rails. Like, it's, it's, it's always hard to be on a, a mixed faith marriage thing and say it can work because ultimately, Every situation is different. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of a strange balance of, of knowing that everyone's journey is unique and your journey is not as dissimilar as you think, but it is still yours. And you, you get to live it the way that it does. And I, I can't promise somebody that it's supposed to turn out a certain way or that it will if you follow a certain formula. I mean, that was that was the, the you know one of the things that I think gets members of the church into trouble is assuming that life will turn out a certain way if you just follow the directions. So maybe I should rephrase that if you're willing, if you're willing to fight for your marriage, if, if you're both, both willing, you, yeah, if both of you are willing to yeah. fight for it, then those mm-hmm. conversations can end with both of you being LDS or neither of you being LDS or one of you being LDS, and that's fine. The only way it should end, if you're willing to fight for it and it's healthy, then it should end with you together. That's the only prescribed ending. I love it. And I think that is the perfect note to end on. Perfect. <laughs> I am awesome. I you're you're very wonderful. Okay. <laughs> I know that we've just, it's, as amazing as it sounds after an hour and a half, just scratched the surface on what you could provide for the, the people that are listening. Again, so well spoken. We would love to have you either on for a part two or or for you to uh, record some things that you didn't get to get into the detail of have an episode just about atheism and <laughs> and dispelling some things about it things like that would you be up for something like that well certainly yeah. and if you wanted to do smaller kind of targeted segments too like you know 20 minutes on on something or mistakes or anything we're we're kind of available whenever i think we've we've seen a lot this is not it's not an unusual state to be in i think one of the things that was comforting to me as i was leaving out was was knowing that I wasn't crazy. The the things that I, I was processing and that were going through our marriage, I wasn't alone in, even if they were still uniquely mine to experience. So, you know, to whatever degree there's something to your listeners that is common uh, that just needs to be brought out in the open and discussed and talked and hear somebody else say, uh, to say it so that you don't have to be the one to, to drag your spouse through three hours. <laughs> but but yeah. more that you, you can, um, both of you can know that you're not, crazy for being believing and you're not crazy for being for being unbelieving um you're not alone you're not alone in, e- in either case um i i would consider that a, a privilege to yeah. to be able to be part of that awesome well listeners uh that are hearing this on their behalf thank you and listeners if if there is anything specifically you would like to hear from james and denise talk about on a future episode uh, make sure to email us at marriage on a tightrope at gmail.com or you can follow us on Instagram at Marriage on a Tightrope. Yes, we'd love to get your feedback. Uh, I know that we're going to get emails saying how much they love this interview. So, Denise and James, thank you so much again. You're very welcome. comes with a breathtaking view 
Walking a tight road.